0: Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly.
1: It's a people's
0: voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media want. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes
1: the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand
0: the world around us.
1: And good morning. Welcome to uh, Friday Breakfast on 3CR. This is Green Left Radio.
0: Yep. Green Left Weekly Radio. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so we on the, in the studio today. We have Zane, um, me, Jacob, and Felix. Good morning. He's a guest on our program, just helping us out a bit, <laughs> being that third person because sometimes it gets a bit boring just having to. <laughs> Alright, so I um, guess we have to do acknowledgement of country, Zane. Yes. Um, sorry, I'm just. Uh, there's
1: just some issue here with the. Headphones. 3CR, not really hearing us. Uh, but that's alright, because I can see this little needle, which indicates we are getting broadcast out across the city at a sufficient volume. Um, yes, it's just um, always um, important to acknowledge that we're coming at you this morning from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and sovereignty was never ceded. And, yeah, we pay our respect to Elders and
0: custodians of this land, past, present and future. Hmm. You know, I kind of want to start off um, talking about this news story that made me very angry when I read about it um, yesterday. Um, it's printed in The Guardian. Um, not sure if it's being sort of told, talked about in other media sources. Um, but basically, due to... This is a story related to Centrelink. Um, and the story is that non-binary and gender-diverse students who receive the youth allowance have been warned their payments may be cut off because Centrelink's internal system only allows for um, male or female. Um, affected students basically, you know, say that disruption occurs because basically there's um, these are students enrolled in universities and a lot of universities these days um, allow for, you know, Extra options for your for ge- um, for what gender you um, identify as, and of course when they pick a third option unspecified, it comes up against um, Centrelink services, uh, and basically they because um they put themselves as say non-binary, genderqueer or any other kind of non-binary kind of third gender, um that's not part of the gender binary, um basically Centrelink are arguing that oh yes. We can't actually recognise that you, you're, a your student, um, like the, that, because um, when it comes to their bureaucratic system, they can't figure out whether this student actually matches their details, which is just a load of bureaucratic garbage, mm. and, and, to say the least. Um, and, and so one of the student, um, one of these affected students, Alex, said they're called to say that we've They've been trying to confirm whether I'm, I'm a student for the last month, but every week they get a response that no student matches those details. And, uh, um, and of course he states, um, he says it's real, I'm not going to quote the swear there for a few, it's real crap for a few reasons. Why does gender need to come into it? My name, address and student ID all match. And, of course, in context, multiple universities across Australia allow students to register their gender as an unspecified or other, including the University of Melbourne, Australian National University, uh, University of New South Wales, University of Queensland, and University of Adelaide. Um, so, yeah, basically the, there's this sort of bureaucratic problem with Centrelink and basically not recognising uh, these students because they don't fit with... You're
2: listening to Community
0: Radio. 3CR. 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 8.55am. ...of a movie. Like, it's so ridiculous, like, bureaucratic. Um, but, of course, you know, when you have these issues of the robo-depth, I don't think sort of issues like this are, are really a surprise. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: the, just... And we, we know that people... Gender diverse people, um, people who are, are transgender, they, uh, apart from copying a whole bunch more discrimination um, in in their day to day life and bigotry from people, um, the gender dysphoria is a real thing, and people um, in this situation uh, they have much higher rates of suicide and self harm, and <coughs> a policy like this just further stigmatizes people and says. You know, you need to you need to ignore the gender that you identify as and identify as what's on your birth certificate. And if you don't do that, we're going to cut you off and you're going to starve. It's just... Very, yeah,
3: it's very dismissive, really. You can just imagine the, you know, the authorities having a very myopic view of exactly what gender is and who are the people that they're dealing with and they're not capable of, of understanding the diversity
1: of the community. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's... Uh, very very nasty stuff yeah, um, in other news, um, last Friday, um, me and Zane both went to um, the Stopadani Road show, um, which had over I think it had over a thousand six hundred people or one thousand five hundred anyway, it was a very big event um, lots of people lots of people from different backgrounds, um, we even saw our I uh, showed the show, the um the um the programmers from the show After Us Beyond Zero Emissions there felt like you know almost, almost everyone anyone who was somebody in the environmental movement was there in terms of the uh, actual content of um the day the first two speakers were quite good you know talking about you know the need um one of them spoke about the um kind of Adani's role was a uh, activist from India who talked about kind of Adani's role in um, India, and sort of, you know, the very kind of destructive environmental role they play. Um, The second speaker was, I forgot her name, um, Amelia... Uh, Millie Telford. Millie Telford, um, who is from the AYCC and SEED, um, you know, generally speaking about um, the whole Indigenous connection um, to this whole struggle. Mm. And then the third speaker was pretty not that great, (laughs) I'd say, um, mainly because he kind of, he pointed I'll just say that he presented a political perspective I particularly disagree with a bit strongly, um, given... Um, Specifically that of green capitalism. Yeah, because I think basically what he was arguing for is that, you know, we can, you know, have a 100% renewable future within the context of a green capitalist kind of with, with, you know, there's no need for any government subsidies the market. We're just raising you know, companies like Adani and all the fossil fuel companies are just being irrational. What in a fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but otherwise, um, the rest of the day went, you know, was quite great and it was really good that um, a lot of people were quite expired to get involved in some action. Um, Free50.org have kind of like set up kind of like a platform um, for like people to set up stop Adani groups. Um, although one of the big focuses of the campaign is going to is they're putting a big focus on putting the pressure on Westpac to divest. Um, because I'm it's far from my understanding all the big major banks apart from Westpac have all basically divested from from giving money to the Adani Coal Mine Project because one of the most sort of irrational things about the about um, this coal mine project is the fact that it needs millions of government subsidi- subsidies to actually get built. And it's like, you know, raise the question, you know, why aren't, why aren't we doing the same for renewable energies, which are much more sustainable and um, environmentally friendly? Mm.
1: Yes. Um, I was quite... Um I was quite moved by the first speaker at that uh, roadshow, Vishali Patil, um, and Vishali is the People's Global Climate Ambassador for India and, from what I can see, has done a bunch of um, campaign organising in the area of India that she's from, which is Konkan slash Maharashtra. Uh, and that was really good because one of the things that the um, that the scummy Coal capitalists say is that oh, uh, Australia needs to needs to build this mine so that we can ship coal to India because that's going to lift people out of poverty. And if you're opposed to this mine, you're opposed to poor people in India having electricity. And for uh, was a really spot-on speaker to um, to kick the evening off because she was saying, well, no, actually communities in India have been campaigning against. Power stations and mines run by Adani for years And they absolutely trash the ecology They trash the air um, The air quality in our region She showed us photos of a a mangrove swamp Which is uh, crucial for all sorts of reasons Particularly because it's a a breeding ground for fish And it kind of filters the water And this whole thing was just wiped out Because there was like a I think it was a 4.6 gigawatt coal-fired power station That's... That's probably about, um, 50% bigger than the biggest coal-fired power station in Australia. Just massive. And it's dumping fly ash over a massive area. So there's just this huge section off the, um, off the west coast of India where the, um, where the fish are all, it's like a dead zone. All the fish are dead. Fisher people can't fish. And, uh, yeah, I was really moved because it just, um, it just brought home to me that this really is a global movement. And you can say that as a sort of intellectual thing, but to see someone there just talking about their campaign work in India, um, yeah, it was really moving and, and it, it just really reminded me of of activists that I've worked with in the Hunter Valley or the Latrobe Valley, but in India.
3: Um, it seems so disingenuous to me that people would use the poverty in India as an exa- as an argument to say that they should have a, these huge coal plants as though they would ever consider the interests of the poor in India. <laughs> they, they would never consider it for any other issue. But, of course, when it comes to coal, it's like, oh, great, we can pluck this argument out. And complete crocodile tears.
0: Well, <laughs> it's sort of um, a similar argument um, to... Um how the right likes to argue against um, refugees, because um, there's always that argument, you know, We're we should take care through. of our homeless people first. Yet, you know, these same but they people, never do it. You know, these same people. I don't see, I, I don't see these people actually out there, you know, supporting the homeless when they're getting criminalised and kicked off the streets. In fact, they're the same people that usually support mm. um, those sort of draconian policies that actually impact on homeless people.
1: Mm. Or the other one they do is, oh, we're, um, we're stopping people from drowning at sea and locking up people in these concentration camps. Is the yeah, like Joe, Joe Hockey and
3: his tears in Parliament <laughs> back in those okay. days, claiming that uh, it was all about the, the children who were being you know, sent to a, a non-signatory of the Refugee Convention and the deaths at sea as though that was the reason that they were... They were stopping the boats. That they were campaigning against um, asylum seekers, as though they it was out of their, the goodness of their heart, rather than just pandering to whatever interests that happen to be lining their pockets and uh, the, the base levels of support that they get from society.
0: Mm. Um, I guess um, one other news story uh, I'd like to just share, um, basically just to give a bit of an update on um, the <coughs> on the current refugee campaign. Um, basically, in terms of um, the vigil for Saeed, um, in terms of what's happening with Saeed in Villawood um, um, for, informa- um, for people's information, Um, Saeed is not, not his real name. He's a 60 um, year old, um, Iraqi man who is facing the threat of deportation, um, by the government. Um, fortunately, um, refugee activists have maintained kind of like a blockade over at Rillowood Detention Centre or not maintained watched, so to speak, um, to stop any kind of deportation from happening. And at this point, it's been a week later since we interviewed Zebedee Parks on Free CR last Friday, and um, yeah, he has not been deported. So um, the campaign's still going on, and they're still pe- um, activists in Sydney are still um, putting as much support as possible for, us to, sorry, sorry, I have a bit okay yeah. <coughs> to stop the deportation from happening. Yeah, okay. that's excellent, excellent
3: work there. It's very good news that uh,
0: they managed to keep up this campaign <laughs> for so long. It's it's been going for quite a while now. Yeah, Um, and just uh, for this information, the Palm Sunday rally will be this Sunday, which will be um, kind of like the best opportunity to, you know, voice your opposition to um, the Australian government's um, detention policies. Okay.
1: Alrighty. So we've got DJ Wasabi. He is here. Uh, he's going to be uh, having an interview with us soon about the new album from Combat Wombat. Hiya.
0: Yeah. Right. Good morning, listeners. Um, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on 855 AM um, with Zane, Jacob, and Felix. Uh, I'm going to read uh, from a news story um, in the latest Green Left Weekly um, about politics in Italy. Basically, um, this is about. Um, about how in central Italy um, Communities are struggling against A uh, destructive pipeline um, Sanimret Gas A leading Italian company in the transporting Dispatching of natural gases um, Announced in 2004, um, 2004 A planned pipeline Extending from Masfru To Minabu um, Named the Arctic line It aims to export natural gases Methylene in this case To northern Europe um, this project, has been co- which has been co-founded by the European Investment Bank, originally uh, envisioned cost consolidating pre-existing structure all along the Arctic the coast, thus limiting the in- environment impact. However, the methane pipeline has de- um, deviated from its planned path so that it passes through the central Apennines a uh, mountainous area in central Italy, across the regions of Mark, Yobra, Lazio, Abruzzo, and Molise. This change has basically um, raised some serious concerns for public health, um, and Sham has responded with fictional reasons for this project's um, modification. But the truth is, the company is simply aiming to significantly cut the pipeline's construction costs. Um, In response, I guess there there has been um, there's been many environmental left-wing groups who have um, organised ongoing protests to stop the project, and of course many arguments have been raised um, in opposition to the pipeline's construction. Um, one of the risks is that the Central Apenes region is an area of high seismic risk, as recent events remind us. Last August, a 6.2 magnitude earthquake destroyed the town of Armatres in Laszlo. Then, in October, a new shock registering 6.1 hitting the town of Riso in March, quickly followed by another earthquake registering 6.5 hit the towns of Norca and Pukli in <coughs> Finally in January, a uh, violent earthquake affected the towns of Monterreo, Cabrillo and Campo, Tosto, and others, I hopefully I'm pronouncing all of these Italian names correctly. Um but um based um but yeah, so there's this um, ba- planned um, pipeline that's been built um in um central Italy and they are you know, activists are, you know getting together to, you know, to struggle and to stop this from happening. Um, and um but, but um, there has, and activists have, um, achieved some results. In 2011, the commission of the um, Italian Ministry of Rhine ruled that the pipeline's path must exclude the Central Apennines area because of both the high risk and the environmental costs that may come. In 2015, the Italian Council of State proclaimed. That in this case the precautionary principle should be applied as the risks for public health, security, and riot are not accurately known. This means that being unable to predict the consequences of this project, the best courses to take no unnecessary risk. And finally, um, Sanim's project was rejected by both the regional council of Abruzzo in 2015 and from other local town councils last year. However, from 2011 on, none of Italian Italy's successive governments have enforced any of these judgments. Instead, former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi, in league with Abruzzo President Lucilio da Afasso, repeatedly endorsed Sanim's project, including its de- deviation through the Central Apennines. Um, so based, but um activists have not given up the struggle and will continue in the fight until Sanin's project is abandoned yep. so that's the story of what's happening Against this sort of pipeline in Italy it seems like there's always all across the world there's always a, a struggle against um against destructive pipelines and from you know North Dakota to all the way to central Italy okay word um well
1: Yeah, good to see some staunch um, campaigns against, uh, yeah, the filthy gas industry in in Italy as well. Hmm. Very nice. All right, um, we have got DJ Wasabi from Combat Wombat with us um, here in the studio. Um, Yeah, welcome. How are you? Yeah, good. Welcome, Radio Land. (coughs) Uh, So, um, Combat Wombat have released a new album Uh, I think uh, 12 years after the last Unsound System got dropped That's That's correct correct. Yeah, We dropped that in
4: 2004 Um, Yeah, we were all living down in Melbourne at the time and um, we'd gotten together and created Unsound System which is a pretty epic release Um, and then yeah, we split our ways, and been working on solo projects for a while, and uh, in the last two years we've come together and decided to do this new album, just across the border.
1: Yeah, nice. And um, yeah, what sort of what sort of themes uh, are through that album?
4: Uh, the, the new one? Yeah, um, we've kind of concentrated on a on a wider b- base and stopped trying to be more time-aligned to the theme and try and access certain points of view on a wider scale, so pe- like it will last a longer time. Yeah, yeah, um,
1: yeah. I remember from Unseen system, there's a lot of stuff about the Howard government and that. And
4: yeah, and lots of dated rhymes and stuff like that. Where. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just can't play them three years later, <laughs> so you just feel like, ah, this isn't relevant anymore. <laughs> but, um. I
1: like that, they carry <laughs> a certain sort of nostalgia.
4: Yeah, d- yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so we're trying to just cover a, a broader thing with this new album. Yeah.
1: Yeah, sweet. And, um. Yeah, what's, what's your. You've played a fair few sort of activist gigs. Over the years
4: Yeah um, From Down on the pirate ship In Tasmania Saving the forest Down there To uh, Roxby Downs Um, We went out there In July last year For Lizard's Bite Back Which was a Six day action Um, It was Yeah Really 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 good Um, Probably one of the most Moving actions I've ever seen Uh, There was a lady there Who was doing witchcraft Throwing bones At at all the security guards and police and at the gates and and all of us were pre- pretending to be dead on the ground and there's lots of fake blood and, <laughs> and it's <was> pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah
1: nice. And you've um you've actually got a bit of a following overseas too.
4: Yeah, this album was released on Pumpkin Records, which is a European label, um smaller kind of activist label over there. Um, and they concentrate more on vinyl releases and um, hitting that underground scene in Europe um, through the squats and stuff like that, um, mm. kind of more uh, punk background, which our sound kind of caters to. Mm. Um, even though we are more of a hip-hop, dubby uh, sound, there's definitely this under-driving punk <laughs> <laughs> attitude about it mm. yeah so um hopefully we'll be going over there soon and touring the album over there and yeah
1: <laughs> yeah redness. and you've been to europe before yeah
4: um not me but combat wombat has um yeah. back in 2012 they did a european tour um and it was it was pretty successful. Um, they toured through Glastonbury, um, through Germany, Italy, France, and I think Czechoslovakia as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, we could. Um, and what's it like? Um, what's uh, I've never actually seen Mark's um, studio. Like these days, everyone's got. Everyone's getting sort of solar and batteries if they own their own house and have the money to do so. Yeah, but uh, Mark's been running that sort of setup since uh, back in the day.
4: Yeah, well, when I met Mark and Izzy back in the late 90s, um, they were rolling around Australia in a veggie oil powered van for starters, and uh, they had a small solar rig back then. Um, these days, it's really moved up with the DIY sound system and uh, monkeys container studio Um, they've got several trailers now full of batteries and uh, inverters and solar panels on top that fold out um, to like an array and one of the trucks has actually got a robotic solar array that follows the sun all day which is really good Um, nice yeah so the whole album is powered and recorded off solar power um, and that Basically one of the trailers would connect to the container and run the container or if we're doing an action or something and we need to take out a sound system um, we'd t- just take the trailer with us and plug into the sound system wherever we need to be. Yeah, yeah.
1: nice. Yeah. So I've been to a few activist gigs over the years where the, uh, <laughs> the sound is not that great. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, I think it's pretty important. Yeah, it's a space that needs to be filled. Yep. Is the activists having their own good quality sound? sound yep. There so what, you go. So well, you could play a, a sort of portable festival or something.
4: Yeah, um, I've seen the DIY sound system do like a thousand people parties, and everybody's happy. Very yeah, yeah, nice. Completely from the sun. Woo-hoo.
1: Yeah, I was reading this book, um, Can't Stop Won't Stop, about the history of of hip hop and and the sort of Roots of hip hop, yeah, and it was talking about, um, you know that Bob Marley song, and he's going, "You'll remember when we used to sit <laughs> yep. in a government yard in Trenchtown. Yeah, um, I never knew what a government yard was, mm-hmm. but I read about that, and it's um, there was like the the Jamaican version of the Liberals, <laughs> and then there was the <laughs> J- Jamaican version of kind of like the Labour Party but I'm, I'm thinking probably a bit more left wing mm-hmm. than the Labour Party a bit more of polarised politics at that time and the government yards they would have big block parties to sort of say you know this part of of Trenchtown is you know we all roll with the government yeah right and youth can all get stuffed. Yep. and they all had their own epic sound systems yeah right so that's very interesting it's, yeah it's I think Mark is continuing a, a long sort of proud <coughs> tradition there
4: Yeah Yeah, I'm sure he is he, He's going right back to his reggae roots at the moment um, He's just released a single as well um, Of his solo stuff called No Surrender Where he went over to um, Kingston in Jamaica And recorded a lot of reggae artists just over the new year Yeah Yeah, nice mm. So it is very strong to his heart, the reggae background, yeah
1: mm, cool Alright, um well I've uh, I was gonna play some Combat On That, but a certain streaming service which claims that I downloaded some music last night now wants to tell me that I need to be connected to the internet to play it. <laughs> and I probably can do that somehow here, but I don't have codes and whatever and we're in a Faraday cage and it's hard to do stuff. So but we will play some Combat On soon. Yes. <laughs> um like next weekend into the future but have you got some gigs coming up or
4: um at the moment no um mm-hmm. but uh if you check our website au, you'll be able to check out the release and any gigs and actions and stuff that we're doing over the future yeah we could
1: oh, all right terrific
4: thank you for having me
1: oh thanks for coming in it's uh i know he worked last night <laughs> and uh yeah, the the industry you're in it's got some pretty late night shifts. It does. So thank Sleep, you. Sleep
4: deprived. I hope I've kept you all entertained, Radio Land. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, thanks again. Big
0: love, thank you.
1: Um yes. DJ Brasabi there from Combat Hallback.
0: Alright, I've got some news um from exciting news for in international politics, um, from Left Weekly. Um, but listeners might have heard, well, if you follow Latin American politics, um, um, the left-wing Lenin Moreno defeats right-wing banker in Ecuador's presidential vote. Um, progressive candidate and renowned um, disability activist from the ruling party Alana's Paz of outgoing President Rafif Kura, Lenin Moreno has won the Ecuadorian presidential election Sunday. Um, this happened in light um, with 94, 94.18% of the official vote counted. Len defeated former banker Guillermo Lasso, cadet for the right-wing Surreal sumo Alliance, with nine point zero percent to 48.93% according to results issued by the, cu- by the country's um, National Electoral Council on April 2nd, who um, is <coughs> um, probably known... Um, Salomo is probably like, a, he's considered like a representative of the nature's oligarchy and probably one of the, its most powerful banking figures. Lassalo proposed a series of, you know, anti-poor neoliberal policies that would reverse social gains get under, um, under Correo. Um, in what many had already predicted, right-wing um, vice presidential candidate Andreas Paz has called for a recount, even though the CNE said it was a transparent and successful election process calling for everyone to respect the results. So kind of like, you know, this kind of funny thing that, you know, kind of hypocrisy. I'm pretty sure if the right-wing won, they probably wouldn't be calling for a recount. Um, although, and... Um, but I guess to talk about, you know, in light of this present electoral victory, Moreno, um, Leonard Moreno, is set to continue and expand social programs introduced under ongoing President Rafael Correa, for whom he served as Vice President from 2007 to 2013, before working as the UN Special Envoy for Disability and Accessibility Moreno, who has um, he um, he has been wheelchair-bound um, after being shot and paralysed in 1988, is well known for his advocacy work for people with disabilities and supporting public education. George Glass, who also served in the Coral Administration, will now serve as the Vice President. The new administration will be officially inaugurated on May 24th. With Coro departing after 10 years of consecutive rule uh, and a number of social gains made under the Citizens' Revolution, Lenin's um, win is seen not only as key, not only for Ecuador, but for the wider Latin American revolution, um, region. Ecuador has been a key part of the left-wing pink tide that has swept the region in the past two wet decades. The pink tide has suffered re- recent electoral setbacks with right-wing forces winning um, Argentino presidency Presidency and Venezuela's National Assembly, and Brazil, the right overthrew the elected president in the institutional coup. This led to some speculate that the region's swing to the left over the past two decades was over. Although Ecuador's result of uh, results suggest such course simplistic. Um... You know, after decades of, the, of social in, economic instability, including the frequent Shia in presence, Alana's under Kuro lifted more than 1 million people out of property, tripled tax income and expanded the country's universal health care and education. Um, the vote on April 2nd was the second round of um, voting after Moreno won almost 40%, 10 points higher than his nearest opponent in Lasso, for just 0.7% short of winning outright in the first round on February 19th. Um, close to 12.5 million Ecuadorians in the country, along with the m- almost 400,000 immigrants around the world, were eligible to vote in Sunday's election. Polling stations were set up in Miami, New York, London and Madrid. It's a decisive moment for the region because of the extreme right-wing reaction in the last years, Coro said while voting. Moreno supporters were celebrating the central North quinto outside the headquarters of Alala's Panaaz. The election was overseen by international observers, including former Ugandan President um, yeah. Jos yeah. Mogjiko um, working with the UNASUR electoral mission. Mojoki confirmed that the voting had been transparent. Um, despite the CNN national observers announcing there were no issues with the voting, similar to the first round of voting, rumours of voter um, voting fraud were circulated on social media by the, the opposition. Defeated Prime Vice President candidate Andres Perez has threatened early to protest outside the CNN office over Ford Keynes, urging his followers to come out to the streets. And I guess another thing I've heard about um, Lenin Coro and I guess uh, this was applied to Rafael Corot, is that they have a bit of a problem with classism in a sense that they're biased against rich people. Against the ruling class. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs>
1: terrible. We're gonna have to work on that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's like, you know, I think ev- I think everyone deserves equal opportunity. Like, you know, if you we have to have equality for all people, including rich people. <laughs> like you know, including we can't, the rich oligarchy. Yeah. We can't we can't we can't make um, but yeah, it's um I think this is um pretty um exciting news. So, um, especially with the kind of the recent kind of um, setbacks, I guess, for Latin America, especially in Venezuela, which is still kind of suffering kind of a lot of, um, you know, disarray from the right-wing forces. Um, but that, you know, that struggle is still um, struggling for a better world, you know, still empowered social movements. And I guess another interesting thing about um, about Lenin Moreno is he was endorsed by over... I think it goes over 500 social movements in Ecuador, you know, showing that you know he's really with you know the grassroots movements and people-powered mm. move, um, change. Yes,
3: yeah, so I think it was particularly good because there was quite a lot of expectation <laughs> that, um, uh, that that he would lose this time and that the right was going to prevail. At least that's what I was the impression I was getting from a lot of mainstream media that uh, that this is Ecuador, the tide had changed and. Um, that uh, the left-wing party was out after all this time. And, of course, that led into a lot of speculation about Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy. <laughs>
1: mm.
3: but, um, yeah, oh, it was very good news to see that uh, they managed to, to stem that tide and to hold on to power for another term.
1: Yeah, um, Ecuador, of course, a major oil producer, and they're up against the same issue there as the Venezuelans, in so far as the economy is dependent on oil, oil gets burnt and causes climate change. I think that um, it should be rich countries first and foremost that that are phasing out fossil fuels. We shouldn't be expecting poorer countries that are copping the rough end of the economic imperialism stick. They shouldn't be the ones that are expected to move first. Um, But yeah, it is a real issue and I think that the... Uh, perhaps more so even than in Venezuela, there's there's a real environmental focus to the Alianza País, the the People's Alliance that's just been re-elected. Um, two really important things though that the that that party did during the previous 10 years that they've been in government, they took um, Exxon to uh, to court over the way that they've just trashed um, the I think it's. The Yasuni rainforest in Ecuador. Um, yeah, that company when they were operating there just used the rainforest as a dumping ground, and there's just the, the environmental destruction there and the amount of oil that's just been dumped into rivers is just disgusting. And uh, there was a court case where they they were pursuing about uh, I think about 10 billion US dollars in damages on behalf of the Ecuadorian people who live in around that area and who've been poisoned um i think the latest with that court case is that there was some appeal which ruled in favor of exxon but i think that's an ongoing story and one of the other things they did was um they offered this is quite a few years back now i think circa 2009 the ecuadorian government went to a um one of the global climate change conferences and said "All right, if you give us um, several billion dollars we'll lock up our oil reserves so this (coughs) will allow us to kind of diversify our economy away from oil and stop that stuff getting burnt and putting CO2 in the air Um, and the rich countries wouldn't have a bar but didn't want to didn't want to get into that deal but the fact that they put that on the table I think is very significant and
3: um, yeah, I remember that. That was, that was quite a good... I thought that was a good way of them presenting it, like, we're a poor country, we really need this oil wealth, but we also really, really value our ecology, and if you guys can help us out, then we can we can do both. Hmm. But, of course, no one was interested. <laughs> hmm. it, it sort of... It put a lot of the hypocrisy of a lot of the, uh, you know, Western governments, I think, on the spotlight, just saying that, even, even if it, you know, like... I, I don't think anyone seriously considered it, it would a, ever happen, but at least it shone a light
1: on it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. People might want to question the environmental credentials of the Ecuadorian government or whatever, but I, can you imagine the, the sort of... I just can't picture an Australian government of the Liberal or Labor persuasion um, putting something like that on the table and saying, look, if you, if the international community gives us a bunch of money we're going to leave coal in the ground. Um, I think it's yeah, pr- a, a pretty impressive uh, stance to for them to have taken. So mm. Yes. Viva Lennon. <laughs> Great you know, name, isn't Lennon it? Lennon <laughs> 17. Well, um, just
0: a, a bit of um, trivia about that name. I think he is actually one of the 20,000... Um, Lenin's in Ecuador. <laughs> um, but one of the things with the name is that, um, a lot of, um, there's a lot, um, Ecuador has like a very sort of strong kind of left-wing kind of culture. And, uh, a lot of the, a lot of, um, there's been a lot of children, like, you know, named after Lenin, you know, the famous Bolshevik, you know, revolutionary because of, um, because of this, yeah, because of the strong kind of left-wing culture. You might have um, see the same in maybe Cuba as well, <laughs> yep, um, which also has a very strong communist sort of radical left socialist culture, and um, probably even even in some other uh, some other countries, maybe even in some Africa that have had sh- strong communist
3: movements. <laughs> well, it clearly shows that he's got some uh, some good left wing pedigree
1: there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there was some, there was some. Uh, trade unionist leaders in um, Venezuela that I've seen by the name of Stalin, <laughs> a, little, a little bit unfortunate, wow. born and the, in the 60s must, yeah, and must have been from that era. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, very good to see, Lennon Marino. Uh, you are listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR, and yes, on the line we've got Susan Reyes from the Ashburton Resident Action Group.
0: Uh, welcome, Susan. Yes, thanks. Good morning. Yeah. Um, so, Susan, I wanted to ask, um, t- can you give us kind of like the background um, for sort of um, Daniel's Andrews' sort of proposed development? Um, it was what it was the name of the estate again? The
5: name of the estate is the Markham, Markham Avenue estate. Yep.
0: Yeah. and so what, what, what is sort of Daniel Andrews' sort of plans with that development for that estate and why is, you know, the Ashburton and Residence Action Group opposing it?
5: Well, initially that, uh, that's been a public housing estate since, um, the 50s and it housed 56 two bedroom units. It's on, uh, and, and they were, you know, nice, nicely placed trees and what have you. So very pleasant, um, public housing precinct. They were allowed to fall into disrepair. They were neglected for many years. And so that they needed to be knocked down. No one um, no one disputed that. But the Andrews government have decided that um, what would be better for them is to build a small amount of public housing on that land and also cram 188 private um, apartments and townhouses and uh, make an enormous amount of profit, and um, take that off uh, to do who knows what with. Meanwhile, they've they've completely ruined our area, and put the people on the public housing waiting list uh, back into three, four, and five-story towers, um, and completely segregated them from from uh, the private housing. So it's it's completely unacceptable because it is gazetted public housing land and it should be used to make a dent in the public housing waiting list. Um, What what they're proposing is an uplift, so there'd be 62 units instead of 56, but 15 of these are uh, one-bedroom, 47 are two-bedroom. There was 56 families. Now there'll only be nine families. There'll be nine left. There'll be 47 families. So it's, you know, it's, it's unacceptable on so many fronts. Yes. Plus the fact that it's going to be this huge monolith development in, um, in a small back street, small neighbourhood back street.
0: Yeah, so, um, what, uh, what I think, um, to, let me get again a picture of this. Essentially what they're trying to, they're trying to knock down this kind of public housing estate, you know, because it's in disability. They've already knocked,
5: they've already knocked, knocked that down. Them.
0: So they've knocked it down already. Um, but they're proposing to replace it with, with this sort of very sort of tall kind of, ha- um, how many stories is this planned to be?
5: Well, there's several towers that they're putting on this, um, on this, and it really is quite a small, um, Plot of land, there's going to be five, six and seven stories, which is going to be private housing. Mm. Um, and it's going to bring them a lot of money because they are going to have uninterrupted views of parkland, uh, Gardner's Creek and the golf course. Um, so they will be very expensive apartments mm. and the public housing is pushed over to the other side with no views. No underground parking, um, half a car park per apartment, you know, cheaply constructed, um, and it's it's just you know a a dollar grab by the government. Mm. They just uh, they don't care about the public housing waiting list.
1: Susan, what what do you reckon would be a more um, appropriate sort of development? Like, what, what do you reckon would be an optimal number for the site, assuming that there was not land hocks off to private developers and it was all redeveloped as public housing. Uh, what do you think would be possible if that whole site was maintained for public housing use?
5: Well I looking at it, it was underutilised because they, um, the old public housing units were, were sort of oriented very nicely. I mean it was a nice precinct but there was a lot of wasted space. So I'm I would say that they could have a doubling. They could have at least a hundred, maybe 120 um, two-story um, residences for public housing. So that would create um, accommodation for another at least 50, maybe 60 families that are waiting on this uh, never-ending list.
1: Mm.
5: So we're not uh, we're not saying. Um, you know, that they can't increase the bulk on that site. We just think that it can be tastefully done and it should be for public, uh, public housing.
0: What has been um, the government's kind of PR kind of justification um, for this development?
5: Well, they haven't really had a PR justification because it, it, what they've been putting out does not justify it. Hmm. They... The originally they put forward, um, which were blatant lies, that they had to had to build all of these private apartments to fund the uh, rebuilding of the public housing with a ten percent uplift. Which, you know, I've been in construction and property development for thirty years, and that is that is the biggest porky I've ever heard. (laughs) But Mm. they persisted with it. You know, they they would look at you with a straight face and say, "Yes, that's." That's what you know. That's true, and it just so wasn't. <laughs> um, you know, they didn't even bother making up a good story, and the supposed um, public consultation that they were required to run, the scope of that, con- uh, the scope of those discussions were um, narrowed by the fact that they um, continued to say that all of the all of the private housing was a must. To pay for the public, so the, the consultation they did with the neighbourhood didn't mention that. There was no discussion about that because that was set in concrete, according to them, because it had to be. Um, it had to be there to build the private housing, uh, public housing. But they, you know, they were not intending to put any of um, the public money into that site, whereas. You know, there's another site in Preston that they were going to put 20 million dollars into, um, and very similar sort of situation. But the uh, the local council, uh, the Jarrabin Council, knocked that back because they said it was unacceptable. The quality of the apartments wasn't any good, um, and and they were allowed to make their own decisions, and they they knocked it back. Our council aren't allowed to be involved in this at all. Mm.
0: Yes, yeah, so that that, um, that brings up to my next question. What has been the position of the local council on this proposed um, development?
5: Well, local council have unanimously rejected it on many, many levels. Um, you know, the, the, going back to sort of really basic things like traffic, um, visual bulk, um, you know, the, the, the stress it's going to put on the neighbourhood amenities, um, you know, also the fact that the public housing is... It's, it doesn't even come up to the, the apartment design regulations that the government have put in. You know, a lot of them are little dog boxes and its um, it's been rejected on every level. Hmm.
0: Um, what um now that i want to I want to know about the kind of community campaign um, that you've been involved in because um from my understanding, what interests me to do an interview with you um, is I saw in the media that around two weeks ago you had quite a big community rally um about and um so yeah I, I would like to know about the campaign, you know how has it been developing and how um what has been the kind of community support you've been getting in the community against this development and for uh, and for a public housing alternative.
5: Um, well, we've, um, the Ashburton Residents Action Group was um, formed probably two years ago when we um, when we first heard that uh, what the government were proposing. Because in September two thousand and fifteen, um, Martin Foley put out a press release that his intention was two hundred and fifty two units out there. At that stage, we had no um, detail because uh, they didn't want us to have any detail. So that was when ARAG was formed, um, basically by um, Rita and her husband, Peter Fellows. They um, uh, whipped up some community interest in it, and that's when it started. We... um, Followed the government releases and websites, and because there was nothing forthcoming, it was you know the more the more questions we asked, the the less um, response we got, and sending off you know letters to uh, the planning minister, Mr. Foer, Mr. Wynne, um, Daniel Andrews, you know nobody was prepared to comment on it. So we've we've sort of waged this this war of letters. Um, it, that was in the beginning, and then um, and then the committee got more involved with um, uh, speaking to the residents about it because it was largely flying under the radar. Nobody really knew that it was going on. So we had um, we took up a petition, we lobb- lobbied residents um, and the Liberal. The Liberal member for Burwood, um, Graham Watt, was very, very um, supportive. He helped us um, immensely, and so we just decided that um, we needed to uh, bring it to everyone's attention, like Greater Melbourne, because it, it, as I said, it was flying under the radar. So we needed to do something. So we planned, we planned our march and our rally. Um, We had an incredibly good turn-up from the residents. We also had um, David Davis, the Shadow Minister for Planning. We had Sue Pennyquick, who is um, the Leader of the Greens. We had um, um, Graham Watt was there, Kelly Dwyer, who is our local federal member. Um, And we all talked to the crowd and and, um, made them aware of what was going on. And happily, the um, the television stations picked up on it. We'd also had um, a um, an article in the Age that morning that um, seemed to pull a lot of interest. Um, so yeah, it was it was orchestrated to get the the most possible um, media coverage. And you know, you're talking to me today because you saw it. So it, it was successful um now hopefully it's um it's a state government issue and it, it will have to be addressed. it can't just continue um, to be allowed to go through it's just a dollar grab and forgetting about people
0: yeah i guess now the last question I want to ask is um Mainly, I want to um, just comment on, you know, why um, you think, you know, public housing is important because um, in our kind of history, um, you know, state governments have actually been, you know, repeatedly sort of pushing towards selling off public housing. Um, it's happening in St as well um, and, you know, other other um, areas of Melbourne. So I kind of want to hear your comments, you know, as someone who's involved in this campaign, you know, why you think public housing is important.
5: Well, public housing is important to us, uh, or to me personally, because this, where I live, is, um, has been public housing and war service since um, the late 40s. Um, There is still a lot of public housing around here, but as you, as you so rightly say, a lot of it's being sold off. And the reason they want to sell, uh, sell off Ashburton particularly is because of the value of the land. Hmm. And I would, I would say St Kilda would be the same. Because they can get so much more money for selling that land um, then, you know they can ju- they they can't justify putting public housing there because they're they're waving goodbye to a big profit and that's what it comes down to everywhere it's all dollars you know let's push the public housing I don't know where they're planning on putting it but it, it need public housing needs to be where. People are, are close to transport. They're close to where they're working, um, and this is all being done in the name of, of the almighty dollar.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, without thinking about, uh, they're really not addressing the public housing crisis. They are just um, they are just capitalising on the value of the land, uh, and, and we haven't been presented with any plan from them um about what they plan to do with this with this profit. Initially they were completely denying there was a profit at all. So that that sort of shows you what sort of um transparency there is. It's it's just appalling. Mm. Um and just, you know, an enormous dollar grab and they don't uh they don't care.
0: Um, and just a last thing, um, what um, how, what are the ways by which um people can follow or even support um your, the campaign, community campaign you have going on now?
5: Well, we have we have a web, um, we have a Facebook page, which is the Ashburton Residents Action Group. They can certainly um, show their support on the Facebook page. There are other contact details there. Um, and, uh, we would love people to, to come out and, uh, and support us in this and show the government that they, they just can't, um, they can't ride roughshod over the community and just do what they like because that's ostensibly what they're trying to do. They've decided they want this money and, um, come hell or high water they're going to get it. They're not listening to the community. They're not listening to the council. They, uh, there is, we're not even afforded basic, um, a basic democratic right to complain. We can't go to VCAT. You know, there is nothing. They are just going to... Well, hopefully they're going to listen to us and go back to the drawing board, but at this stage uh, they're still pressing ahead with um, doing what they propose. Mm. So m- the more the merrier. More people who write into The Age, The Herald... You know, get onto our face page and and show your support. Um, You know, People Power should be able to um, turn this around, but, I don't know, Andrew's government are are, are pretty dictatorial. Um, You've seen what they've done with um, Skyrail and what have you. And uh, People Power got them to do something about the Youth Detention Centre, albeit still in the same um, suburb. It's just moved... Away from um, from the housing, but um, you know they need to be held to account. Need, we pay their wages. They need to do what we want them to do, not what they think they want to do. Mm. Yeah.
0: All right. Thank you very much, um, Susan, um, for being on the show. It was um, very great um, hearing about your um, the, um, great community campaign. You have and you definitely have our full support.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Eeps. Good morning. All right, uh, Susan Ray's there from the Ashburton Residence Action Group. And as Susan mentioned, <coughs> if you're uh, keen to support the campaign or just check it out, you can, uh,
0: yeah, look them up on Facebook. Um, uh, Ashburton Residence Action Group.
1: All right. Alrighty, righty. It's uh, Friday morning, four minutes past eight. You're listening to 3CR. This is uh, Greenleaf Radio. And I believe it is time for the activist calendar.
0: Okay, so on the activist calendar, we have, um, coming up this Saturday, uh, we have politics after Trump, building resistance, a day of discussion on fighting for a better world. Um, that is happening, um, on, from 10am to 5pm at the site works, which is at free free Saxon Street in Brunswick, sort of behind, um, Dawson Street on, on Sydney Road. Sheet delicious lunch and snacks available, and there'll be sessions on, you know, um, you know, the rise of Donald Trump, um, Pauling Hanson, the continuation of Turnbull's liberal government's pro-corporate agenda. Um, we'll have a session on the environment, um, anti-racism, and building solidarity and what we can do to fight back and build a people's movement. The day is also going to be introduced by Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton. On Sunday will be the Big Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees. Um, that will be happening at 2 p.m. at the State Library, um, and it will be great, and with music from 1:30 uh, p.m. The next, uh, on coming up on Easter weekend, um, will be the Marxism conference happening from Thursday, the 13th, um, which will be the opening night, um, to Sunday, the 16th of April. Um, it will feature, guest speakers, um, from international guest speakers, including uh, activists from Black Lives Matter. And, uh, I think there's a, and also a member of, uh, Indian Communist Party. So yeah, that should be an interesting weekend of, um, discussion. Um, in other events, um, there will be a March Science on Saturday, the April, the 22nd. Um, that will be happening at 1pm at the State Library on Swanson Street on Saturday, April, the 22nd. On April, the 28th, on, that would be a Friday. Um, from 10:30 PM outside the Victorian Markets, there will be a rally to save the Victorian Markets, which is um, the subject of being fa- um, facing threats um, by of of, of redevelopment. Um, basically, uh, attempts to basically we did it in feel about it previously, but basically going to be attempts to you know commercialise it and kind of lose a lot of its kind of personality and why people go to the Victorian Markets to begin mm. with.
1: And, of course, next weekend is the Marxism (laughs) Conference. Um, That's uh, Thursday the 13th to Sunday the 16th of April. Uh, It's at Victorian College of the Arts, uh, Space 28 off Dodd Dodd Street. You can check it out at marxismconference.org. Opening night, Resisting the Right, is uh, 6.30pm on Thursday the 13th of April, free entry for Marxism ticket holders. I don't know how much it is for other people. And uh, on that opening night, there is uh, Haley Persin, an African-American socialist on the situation facing activists organising under Trump. Uh, Bassem Tamimi uh, from Palestine, considered a prisoner of conscience by Amnesty International. Bassem is a long-standing resistance fighter from the West Bank. And, uh... Christos Stavrakakis, um, a member of the International Workers' Left, or DEA, in Greece. Uh, Christos is a long-term activist from the anti-fascist movement in Greece. And Liz Walsh from Australia, who's a member of uh, Socialist Alternative and a leading refugee activist. And we did uh, try and line up an interview um from one of the organisers of Marxism Conference this morning. Um, Didn't end up happening, but uh, if we do a show next Friday morning, which is quite possible, even though it's um, Easter Friday, um, yeah, we'll we'll get someone from Marxism Conference on the line to tell us about, uh, yeah, some of the sessions and speakers that are going to be happening down there. Uh, Special guest on the line which is uh, Mary Merkinich
0: from the Teachers' Alliance. Welcome, Mary.
2: Yes, good
0: morning. How are you? Good. So, Mary, we want, uh, I guess, to start off while we have you on the program, is I guess um, the first question to ask is about, you know, about this new EBA um, that has been passed, um, that has been given to the AU for teachers in Victoria and, you know, why you think that um, the, the deal isn't good enough basically for teachers?
2: Okay, so um, the AU officials have been negotiating for around about 11 months and then at um, even preceding the negotiations, actually I should mention that the membership drew up a log of claims and and the teachers and the education support staff were really enthusiastic about the process and making sure that their... um, concerns were in this log of claims and the concerns were working conditions. For a long time people have been saying this has got to be the core issue. At the same time the AU officials commissioned the, um, a survey to be done um, so that they could back up any arguments about working conditions and they found that on average teachers work something like 53 hours a week and principals 60 hours a week. So that just totally verified what we, we all knew and we'd all been feeling, that we work far too hard. Um, anyhow, so then it gets to the negotiations that i said it was going for 11 months. I'm a, a branch Victorian branch councillor, and so at every branch council meeting we'd get reports of little offerings from the government. Some of them were quite good. Some of them like um, uh, provisions for how to deal with domestic violence, which were also obviously welcome and good, but part of the government's um, agenda which they want to promote themselves with so it wasn't as if it was something that they weren't happy to give away and because it's going to make them look really good. But at every report, there would, it would also be stressed they're saying no to working conditions, this is going to be a hard fight. So just recently, we get a report that they're at the pointy end of negotiations as Merit of Peace, our president, put it. Um, but there was nothing on working conditions. So we were, we were all quite surprised because they had said from the start they were going to fight this. Um, it was going to be a hard fight, but they were, they were with the membership on this issue. And then we get this uh, description of almost concluding negotiations, but there's nothing on working conditions. Uh, and then they outlined a couple of things that the, the government negotiations had said that they would do to address the issue of working conditions and they were firstly four days per teacher release a year uh, and that we'd all um, be expected to work under the 38 hours. And so you know a few of us sort of looked at this and well after we all looked at it we all decided that four days release was not going to solve the working condition, conditions issue at all. Um, and, and the idea that we should all work 38 hours, which we all love to do, is just sort of, it, it's very fanciful. Uh, so that's sort of the core of the stuff. I mean, I can expand, but I, I'm just wondering if you wanted to ask questions before I go on.
1: Yeah, same. <coughs> um, yeah, my mum's a, um, high school art teacher up in New South Wales and a long-term, um, Teachers Federation member up there. Um, it's just growing up with a parent who's a high school teacher, you're very aware that there's a heck of a lot of marking homework, there's a heck of a lot of preparing lessons for the next day, for the next week. When the exam time comes around, when school reports come around, there's a heck of a lot of that. Um, what what sort of strategy um, would um, the AEU or teachers organisations have to achieve that 30, 80 hour a week or how, how can you get better conditions?
2: Well, uh, the officials basically had no strategy they They thought that simply sitting at a, a table with the government negotiators would give them some sort of deal, and then towards the end of the eleven months, the negotiations when they obviously the the uh, negotiators hadn't moved on this they they said that they would um, initiate um, a campaign or not a campaign, sorry, initiate the proceedings. To be able to get permission to have protected industrial action. So they sought the, the branch council's permission to do so, which they got because everyone was saying, yes, this is a vital issue. And so they went, they, they started um, proceedings by going to the Fair Work Commission and asking for protected industrial action. And that was announced over the airwaves and in the newspapers, and so the membership heard of it, and the membership were all in favour of it as well and were expecting to take industrial action. And, of course, it would have been no surprise because in every previous EBA that we have, that is usually what happens before any kind of um, agreement is signed. However, um, just after the council meeting that they had uh, started these proceedings, the next one was the one at which they then reported that they were at the pointy end of a deal and that the government had moved on working conditions by offering us these four days of release a year. Now, what that actually means is um, four days is something like 32 hours less a year. (laughs) Except um, if you're going to be released from your teacher duties, you're going to also have to leave work for the classes that you're not teaching on those days. So you're actually not getting the total um, 32 hours because you have to leave this work in advance anyway. And every teacher knows that most of the time when you're not at school and even if you've left work for your classes, it just doesn't work out as well as if you were there in the classroom. And then sometimes when you come back, you have to pick up and you have to try and make up for what has happened when you were away. Um, So there's all that aspect of it. The second aspect of that is, that teachers have what we call light days and heavy days. So a light day is when um, you won't teach as many classes and you'll have a number of uh, sessions where you can sit down and do some of your corrections, some of your preparation. Although these days in schools, it's very hard to be able to use those because there'll be all sorts of other administrative tasks, answering emails to parents, etc., that you have to do as well. Um, but so... What will happen more than likely is because the principals will have the right to decide which days you are released from, is that the principal is going to not pick you the, the day where you have the most classes, because that's going to cost more money, um, and sorry, not pick pick the days that will cost the least amount of money, um, and therefore you're going to lose a lot of time as well. Now, the opposite, which is what we actually wanted, is we wanted to have a reduction in the number of classes we teach per week. Mm. And so in our log of claims, we had two hours less per week than what both primary and secondary teachers teach at the moment, but also class sizes. And class sizes are extremely important, not just because they're going to alleviate our workload, but, you know, it's just logical. Everyone knows, except perhaps Christopher Pine and... Um, <laughs> The current federal education minister, that it's much better for education. It's one of the things that private schools use to advertise why parents should send their kids to private schools. Mm. Uh, so those two things combined would mean that we would have something like 82 hours or less per year versus 32 hours. But secondly, for every class that you um, have less to teach, there's less preparation and correction. So there's it's like a, um, a, a and
1: like a multiplier effect
2: Yeah, or a multiplier effect, that's the word I'm looking for, exactly uh, Yeah, so, you know, um, it, it, it's very disappointing And mm. we said what you need to do is we need to obviously take industrial action And this would have been a, a fantastic opportunity Because the state government, as everyone knows Or at least everyone who reads papers and listens to the newspaper Is that the, the state government is in a weak position They've got all sorts of their mind in all sorts of scandals, they've got um, industrial action going with other with the CPSU, I think or at least some other unions, uh, and they're heading into a state election next year. So they want industrial peace with their teachers. They don't want to take on the teachers as well, and so it would have been a great opportunity for us to take industrial action, not that we want to, but it's just um, an excellent tool to bring them back to the bargaining table and say, now get serious. This issue is important not just for teachers and education support staff in terms of their working conditions, their well-being, but also for quality state education because the other obvious link is if you have stressed and overworked teachers, they're not going to deliver the kind of quality education that teachers want to deliver and that um, students deserve to have as well.
1: Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess the other thing about those four days release is you've just said that out of this survey, teachers are working an average of 53 hours a week uh, up to 60 hours a week for principals. Uh, do the maths, like four days release, um, 32 hours, that makes up for like, what, two or three weeks worth of the uh, presumably unpaid overtime that teachers are doing on an ongoing basis?
2: And, and of course, the stress the teachers experience is over time. You know, it's not just one day each term, and that's what it's going to be. It's one day each term that's written into the EBA. At the same time, in our EBA, they've now included that we have to have peer observation. It has to be completed online, which everyone knows is going to mean extra administrative work that um, is going to add to our workload. Hmm.
0: Um, so what? Um, <clears throat> um, so what, um, You know, um, what is the kind of campaigning that is um, happening from the members um, to you know to demand that we you know get a better deal?
2: Well, some members. Uh, I saw that um, one person had started a, p- a petition online. Um, most members, because we only just found out about this at the end of term. At the moment, you probably know there's school holidays, so teachers and education support staff and principals, for that matter, were all a bit surprised um, because we'd been told that we were going to be engaging in industrial action and then all of a sudden we have a deal. So quite a few people are very surprised. And so really there's a lot of anger there and uh, people saying this is a really bad deal. But apart from that, nothing really has happened in terms of campaigning. The next step will be that the, uh, there will be ratification meetings around the state. And so it will be interesting to see what kind of discussion happens at those meetings, um, whether the anger will, uh, you know, be be visible at those meetings. I know that some sub-branches of the AU have passed motions saying they reject this deal, but... Uh, don't know exactly how widespread that is, and as I said, a lot of um, teachers, AU members only found out about it at the end of the term, so there wasn't that much time to do that much.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Well, it's it's a bit of a sticky one, so it looks like it's going to be difficult for you to turn it around. Are they they literally going to sign off on this deal, though, without there being any kind of any kind of campaign, that's
0: that's really problematic. Or what about, um, a ma- do they, is it even going to be a mass members' meeting to endorse this EBA?
2: No, no, they ruled that out. I suggested that during debate at one of the council meetings and I was verbally hammered for even suggesting it because I was told the ratification meetings were a very democratic process and that's the way that it would be
0: decided
2: so uh, there won't be any mass meetings, there won't be any kind of um, way that that will will take place. Instead um, there'll be reports by the leadership, those of us who voted no at the Victorian Branch Council will not be given a voice unless we demand it or somehow get some sort of um, intervention through asking questions at meetings but the usual procedure is that they just give very, very long reports, so that most of the ratification meeting time is taken up. There'll be a short time for questions, and then they'll expect people to vote, and that will that'll be the process. And and because a lot of people uh, think that it's a done deal, it's yeah. been announced.
0: Unfortunately, Mary, um, we're running very low on time. We, have, we really probably have to cut you off there. Um, okay. So, yes. But, yeah, um, thank you very much um, for you know, being on our program and um, we'll, hope, we'll f- hopefully maybe talk to you a bit more soon if there's any more developments. Yep, my pleasure.
2: Thank yeah.
0: you. All right. Thanks again. Yep,
2: bye-bye. Okay.
1: Um, yes, all right, problematic developments there. With the um, Australian Education Union... Um, Yeah, sounds like not the most uh, sort of robust campaign there to try and get a better deal for teachers. Okay, we're going to finish up. Beyond Zero Emissions are uh, coming in next, so stick around. Um, This has been Greenleaf Radio for another week, um, and you're listening to 3CR, of course, the most rad radio station in Melbourne.